Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Cody Moser. Cody is an evolutionary anthropologist and PhD candidate studying cultural evolution in the Department of Cognitive and Information Sciences at University of California, Merced. Today we're going to be talking about science and scientism, famed molecular biologist Rupert Sheldrake, his theory of morphic resonance, and what he calls the 10 tenets that make up the ideology of scientific materialism. We're going to be asking whether evolution has a telos, how to reboot scientific exploration through patronage, tolerating cranks and free inquiry, and barriers to growth and innovation, not only in science, but in institutions more broadly. For those of you who've been with us for a while now, uh, you may know that this is Cody's third time on the show. And uh, as always, uh, we had a wonderful and uh, absolutely intellectually expanding conversation together. And I'm so grateful for Cody uh, for making time to come on the show and, and talk about this topic. I find Cody to be one of the most interesting researchers out there who has both breadth and depth in terms of his knowledge, not only of evolution and evolutionary anthropology, but also in topics uh, far beyond that. Taking the time to have long, in-depth conversations like these is one of the best ways that I think there is to really get down to important matters and uh, learn not only valuable knowledge from one another, but also uh, achieve, hopefully, some profound insights. And uh, I believe this conversation uh, does both of those things. I want to, again, thank Cody so much for uh, sharing his time with us, and I hope you'll all appreciate this conversation as much as I did. This is the Agora Politics Podcast, where we're exploring new frontiers in political theory. Without further ado, I give you Cody Moser. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is returning guest and friend of the show, Cody Moser. Cody, welcome back. Hey, great to be here. It's so good to have you. And, uh, you know, the last time we talked, I believe, was back in August, something like that. Uh, and then prior to that, it was right around the beginning of the pandemic. And so we're actually in the process of forming this like weird little thread of interactions right now. Uh, with regard to the state of the coronavirus, it seems as if we're finally at the point where this nightmare might be actually over uh, for good. Uh, I'm here in Michigan. I'm not sure uh, where exactly in the country you are, but it seems like at least here, despite our governor's best efforts, things are finally starting to uh, open back up and at least the businesses uh, are getting more comfortable with people coming in, whether you're vaccinated, whether you're not vaccinated. Most of the stores around me are at least uh, requesting that you are uh, fully vaccinated if you come in with a, without a mask. Um, but as far as I know, none of them are like very hardcore about it. They're not asking you to, to show your papers or anything. Uh, how, how's the state of affairs where you're at? Uh, well, I'm in Florida. So uh, oh, everything's so it's open. Free for all. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a party down there. Yeah. If, uh, you know, if your business is not open at this point, it's probably by choice. Um, hmm. you know, a lot of people are wearing masks by choice. It's a little safer than I think the news is making it out to be. Um, but definitely everything's open right now, including government buildings, every business, everyone's pretty much good to go, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, it's, it's so funny because the states that uh, were very anti-lockdown, like Texas and Florida, turned out not to really be suffering that much uh, or even that much more, sometimes even less than some of the states that went more hardcore. Uh, and I think, uh, well, you know, the, the truth will bear out eventually on all this stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully the politicians that uh, took uh, irresponsible actions towards their citizens and towards their economies will, uh, will, will pay consequences for doing that. Anyway, um, that is not the topic of our main show today. I just wanted to uh, jumpily brief, uh, yeah, jump into that briefly because we are uh, in different parts of the country, and I always like to use that as an opportunity to ask about what's going on where other people are located and just sort of compare. You know, part of the beauty of our federalist system is that we have different states and they're all doing different experiments and governance, and we get to see which ones are working out best. And as long as there's still freedom of movement, which there is to some extent right now still, uh, we can uh, we can choose to go where we'd like uh, and go to where our policies and preferences are better suited. That being said, today's topic is not related to the coronavirus, so we're going to cut out that chatter for now. Uh, I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about science, uh, and in particular, uh, something we call scientism, which is sort of related to many of the, I'd say, claims and um, different narratives that have uh, popped up in particular over the last year around coronavirus, but it's not simply limited to the pandemic. Uh, scientism or really blind faith in certain assumptions in science or treating science as if it is a set of beliefs that you sort of adapt and then you go through the world uh, following them rather than uh, adhering to the really the core principles of science, which are, in my opinion, based around more of a, a process orientation and and a sort of consensus building that happens over time and that is always subject to uh, refutation, even by a, a, a small minority. Um, scientism is something that's very, very old, uh, maybe as old as the scientific uh, enterprise itself. Uh, and more particularly, we're also going to get into assumptions underlying materialism today. There is a subject who is the uh, the core focus of our discussion, which is Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake is a uh, molecular biologist and plant pathologist. Uh, and before we get into Rupert Sheldrake and uh, his sort of uh, criticisms of science and the way in which it's become a uh, kind of ideology in our time and, and even before that a little bit, uh, I wanted to just briefly uh, have, for those of you who maybe haven't met you before, although we've We've talked a number of times now. Uh, a brief introduction to yourself, uh, your credentials, your academic work, and what you've been up to. Yeah, sure. Um, so as we sort of introduced me earlier, my name's Cody. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of California, Merced, in their Cognitive and Information Sciences Department. Although, I guess in my case, is the Information Sciences is doing a lot more weight than the Cognitive. Uh, because I'm very new to the cognitive sciences. Uh, my background is largely in anthropology. I used to study primate behavior and a bunch of other things. And then I got into this field of uh, cultural evolution and kind of evolutionary psychology, understanding uh, why it is that we act the way that we are and where some of these traits came from in our evolutionary past. Mm. Um, right now I'm working on a few different things. Um, I work on things pertaining to like the evolution of music and language. 
so for example, like our interactions with animals and how maybe that might have uh, some kind of implication for our language systems. You kind of go around the world. It sounds kind of crackpotish, but you go around the world um, to like hunter gatherers and traditional tribes and things like that. And while most of the times we're communicating in these Western industrialized societies, um, we're communicating with other people, but people, you know, out in the real world, I'll call it, um, communicate with animals all the time, usually to deceive them. So like uh, prey calls, so, you know, mimicking birds so that other birds come so you can kill them or, you know, rattling antlers together so that deer think that other deer are fighting to attract them and also kill them. Um, people do that vocally all the time. But aside from that and in more recent projects and why I kind of moved to a new uh, academic department for my PhD is um, I'm working on um, models of cultural evolution and specifically in terms of innovation and um, institutions. So kind of my core question is, how did we get all this nice stuff that we have? Like we're talking on a computer right now, um, you know, thousands of miles away from each other. You know, how did we get that and how do we get more of it? And that's pretty much what I'm interested in now. So, yeah, that's a very, uh, very important question. And I think also this aspect of cultural evolution is going to be very relevant to our talk today because there is always this uh, this sort of split between those who think of science as a process and those who think of science as an institution. I saw there was a paper released uh, not too long ago about um, about vaccine skeptics and there had mm -hmm. been sort of an infiltration uh, supposedly but you know, into the vaccine skeptic, various vaccine skeptic online communities. I think mostly they were on Facebook, but also elsewhere uh, by a group of scientists. I don't remember where they were from. I think maybe it was MIT. Uh, and what they found was that one of the core beliefs of these vaccine skeptic communities was that they thought of science as a more of the process rather than an institution, uh, which is really, really funny <laughs> coming on down high from these uh, from these MIT scientists, that that would be a surprise to them uh, and that they would consider that a difference between them. Now, of course, science is both of those things uh, in our in our colloquial use of the term. How do you think about the history of the development of science and its place as an institution versus a method for, uh, let's say, verifying and propagating truth? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, you and I have spoken a little bit about this topic of knowledge-bearing institutions, um, that if you go back far enough back in time, um, there were always groups of people or um, even one person in a group who had access to knowledge that other people uh, didn't have, whether this was because um, it was things that maybe other people couldn't know. So like, for example, you think about shamans, um, in some of the earliest hunter-gatherer society, the point of the shaman is that he can communicate with a realm that most people really don't have access to. Um, but over time, you do get certain other systems that arise. The big one for me that I often think of um, is like the monastic system in medieval Europe. Um, for many, many years, you had these institutions that were set aside from the rest of the world, and their only job was to sit there and focus on the knowledge that had been collected in years past. Eventually, all these other systems go away and something else replaces them. Something that has to be the, I guess, main, you know, vanguard of knowledge in society. And it seems as of recent years, um, that would be the university system. It is pretty interesting, though, that 
the university system didn't necessarily really start with science. It was kind of at the tail end of the monastic system that the university system came to. Um, as monasteries started loaning out their books, and as the printing press started copying the books that the monasteries so coveted, um, other people had access to them. And more and more books ended up in more centralized places. You had libraries, then you had universities, and uh, people just wanted to know what other people thought about the world in years past. Um, science came much, much later. And what's interesting is that science obviously is a process, but the process itself has become canalized in this like medieval university institution. And we often don't realize that, um, that really one of the big things about capital S science um, is that it's able to sit there and gatekeep uh, knowledge and what passes through the entire scientific process um, without really, you know, what's the word I was going to think of? Um, any second checks on their system in a sense. Um, because they do have that institutional pool. Well, so so I'll just stop you right there before you go to the next part. Without any second checks, meaning outside verification, I mean, verification by uh, those who are not well embedded and sort of verified and authorities, and not only inside of the scientific enterprise, but often is the case inside of very particular and narrow disciplines or fields. When we talk about things like the peer review process, those are very insular, uh, often very circular types of, uh, uh, of knowledge production ecosystems that only involve a, a, a very, very small number of, uh, of, of persons who are, you know, given the right or the ability to, uh, to verify and to uh, choose to accept or reject gatekeeping function. Like you talked, like you said there, uh, what, what, what gets, passed through the system and even has the opportunity to be checked off as science or not science. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you continue from there. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's kind of the point is that, yeah, the, the, in a sense, they've gate kept it enough that um, in order to participate in the activity of science, um, you also have to participate in the institution. It's not often that you see, well, say, Back in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you saw this a lot, um, private industry publishing in journals. You don't see that so much anymore. It's pretty rare. Sometimes you see like nonprofit, um, almost think tanks publishing things like that. But again, it's mostly university-based people uh, who publish scientific papers. Hmm. And uh, so before we jump right into uh, the man of the hour, now I'm going to I'm going to have to preface uh, his introduction with uh, with some qualifications just so that everybody knows that we're not just talking about some random crank, although I would say that the word crank itself has sort of been weaponized to sort of demonize uh, certain scientific thinkers who dare to kind of question some of the assumptions and uh, and dogmas that are attendant to the scientific community. You yourself are not an outsider. You're well within a number of institutions, but you have yourself encountered uh, certain kinds of dogmatism, certain kinds of uh, ideological strains. And here I'm not talking in particular about uh, political uh, ideology, although that is uh, increasingly a problem where it used to not be as well so much. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about this this issue of, uh, of acceptability within the institutions and sort of the need to conform in order to climb uh, the, uh, let's say just the hierarchies within these institutions 
uh, as far as you've seen it from your own experience? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my background is in anthropology. Um, and, you know, if there's a field that kind of forces you to conform, that's, you know, the number one field, I would say. Um, my, um, I talk about this with a professor of mine all the time, which is that you go to all kinds of fields like, say, um, psychology or biology. And if people have disagreements, they stake it out in papers and um, that's the end of it. But you go into anthropology and where disagreements arise, um, you know, you're either a postmodernist who doesn't think that gravity is real um, or you're a fascist who wants to say that uh, everyone basically has a monkey brain. Um, and that's pretty much it. Once that disagreement comes in, it's like, okay, you have to pick a side. And uh, once you're on it, it's done. Um, anthropology in particular had a bad time with the uh, science wars, which was a period like in the 1990s uh, to early 2000s almost. Uh, between the postmodernist perspectives, people who were skeptical of the scientific process and uh, scientific papers that were coming out, um, and those who said, no, um, anthropology is a science. We can study people using the scientific method. Um, and that rift really has, hasn't been healed at all um, in anthropology. Um, recently, there was, or not recently, it was maybe two years ago, um, the American Anthropological Association, which is kind of the big organization for cultural anthropology, uh, published a paper saying, hey, uh, biological anthropologists, all you people who study skeletons and genetics, uh, why don't you come back and publish in our journals again? And uh, I published a blog post saying, hey, this might be a good idea, you know, get some consilience back, um, get everyone to start agreeing after the science wars are done. And um, I had some colleagues who, uh, you know, lived through the science wars and they said, no, 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 um, I'll never publish in their journal. They don't see me as a scientist and I don't see them as one either. Um, I don't want to talk to them. Um, so in that case, it's like, ah, yeah, you kind of do have to toe the line there. Um, Hmm. Well, so, uh, you know, there is, uh, obviously these, uh, these factional debates, uh, I think, uh, there's sort of a tendency or a bias for everyone to think that their field is the worst field in this regard. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, as someone who does not come from a particularly, uh, scientific field myself, my field is more closely aligned with political science or philosophy. Uh, we don't really pretend to be scientists, uh, and, uh, although most philosophers, I think would argue that you can't really do science without philosophy. And so you actually have to have really good philosophy of science underpinning your methodology, uh, if you want to arrive at truth and if you want to be logically consistent and, uh, and have something that's uh, verifiable and replicable, uh, throughout. And in fact, uh, you know, briefly, you mentioned there the split among the postmodernists, uh, I'm noticing uh, in, in at least the broader discourse, or at least the discourse on Twitter, that there is also the split uh, among sort of those who are uh, are sort of staunch. Uh, well, we'll say I, I won't even say modern. Well, I'll say modernists, right? There are sort of these modernists and and and, and a postmodernist split. There are kind of other other factions like uh, like meta modernists that are popping up, and I've had a number of meta modernists on this show as well, which is. Uh, uh, I would I would say sort of a, an attempt at sort of synthesizing those perspectives a little bit. Um, but one of the things that's interesting to me here and that's relevant for our conversation today is that the critiques 
that postmodernists offer, despite the fact that they maybe uh, don't have as much respect for, uh, let's say, the rigor that might be involved uh, in those who are uh, in opposition to them, is, uh, is that they actually are uh, quite useful for sort of tearing apart any kind of dogmatic structures that might be there. Um, and so one of the one of the things that I sort of keep returning to is that uh, there are a lot of people in particular in the political realm who are saying, look, uh, these these postmodernists are trying to apply their theories to, uh, to 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 our conceptions of politics, to our conceptions of uh, of rights and justice and, and all these sort of sacred values of political philosophy. And, and, and they're they're complaining that they're ruining the field and that they're creating all kinds of problems and we need to just sort of if we could just expel all the postmodern thinking then we could go back to our you know our perfect state of uh, of nature which apparently existed before uh, before the the poststructuralists um, but <laughs> but but my thinking is look we can't just pretend that they um, that they didn't exist and that they haven't put forward their critiques, we have to actually deal with those critiques as they are. And if it's true that our ideas can't stand up to those critiques, then we ought to find out why. It's not that we can just sort of do away with these postmodernists, and they might actually have some interesting critiques that we ought to deal with. Uh, how do you think about the encroachment by sort of postmodern, poststructuralist theories uh, that really came out of sort of uh, literary genres or artistic genres uh, of academia, uh, encroaching on, um, on, well, not only your field, but also natural sciences and other other fields as well. You know, um, when I was first exposed to this stuff, I thought it was like um, a, an immediate disaster. I thought it was the worst thing that could have ever happened because I was kind of one of these staunch, you know, Popperite believers that it's like, no, the scientific process is pure. And if we just follow those rules a little bit better, then we will come to arrive at the correct truth. Um, you know, I was always like, ah, you know, this, this Foucault guy is a fraud. All of them are frauds. Um, they're just saying nice things. And to an extent, I do think a few of them took it a little too far. Um, in anthropology, for example, we had Clifford Geertz, um, and Geertz did something that really upsets me. Um, I'm kind of fine with this, you know, almost literary perspective um, for looking at the world or uh, social sciences and things like that um, on one condition, which is you can't tell me I can't use science um, in the meantime. Uh, that's my only problem. But, you know, recently I have really come to um, agree with a good number of their ideas. I read, for example, uh, Paul Feyerabend's book, Against Method. And that kind of flipped my whole worldview upside down um, from this, you know, rationalist perspective to saying, uh, maybe there's something to what these guys are saying. Uh, Feyerabend's idea was, hey, um, philosophy of science isn't just philosophy of science. We have to understand um, how it is historically that the best science got through. And he says, really, um, a lot of times this is pretty absent of the scientific process. So he talks about how Galileo pretty much lied his way through um, to getting the uh, Copernican revolution started. Um, in many ways, the um, original view of the planets uh, was more accurate for what tools they had for the time. Um, Galileo was proposing something that at the time really couldn't be measured with what they had. Um, it didn't work out in many ways. He was taking the exact same results 
of previous experiments and saying, no, look, um, their results actually confirm what I say, and simply just reinterpreting um, the end result to say, okay, you know, I'm right. And what's interesting about it is that in that case, science ended up still working out. Um, things didn't really follow the scientific process in the way that you would, would have expected it to, um, but again, it worked out. Um, Foucault is another one who's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I think he gets a bad rep in many places where he shouldn't, um, because he didn't say, oh, knowledge is just power and knowledge is only power. He says that in many cases, knowledge formulation comes as a result of wanting more power or using knowledge to get more power. He's not saying, oh, um, all these facts you know about the world are false. He's just saying, well, think about the ways that they arise. Um, and you see this all the time. I mean, especially like in the last year or so, let's say, for example, this idea of the lab leak theory. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and talk like some kind of expert. I really don't understand um, that so much. But what I do know is that when that theory first came out, um, you know, media was saying, um, you know, this is a conspiracy theory. Uh, Fauci was debunking it uh, in front of Congress. Uh, many scientists were saying, you know, massive threads on Twitter saying, I'm going to tell you why Trump's theory is wrong. Um, and now it seems like the tide has turned a little bit on it uh, from saying this is just a completely fraudulent conspiracy theory to saying, huh, uh, you know, maybe there's something to it. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I think it is true or not. I, again, I don't know enough. But what's really interesting about that phenomena um, is the fact that people said it's false um, in a way to kind of. Uh, I would say detract from the person who was saying it was a thing, who at the time was Trump, um, to kind of tear him down a little bit, and in the process, uh, tore knowledge down altogether. Mm. Yeah, sort of uh, sacrificing their uh, their principles and really their credibility. Uh, many of the virologists and uh, epidemiologists there uh, who were staunchly opposed to that theory and demonizing the people who were even entertaining it. Uh, are really just sacrificing their the cre- their credibility and the credibility of their field at the altar of uh, of political expedience, uh, mm-hmm. and so I think that's actually a good example here of why this conversation is so important. People might be wondering why are we having a conversation about science, scientism, materialism more generally uh, on a podcast that's supposedly about politics, and the reason is that. Uh, science is uh, a one method that we have of making sense of the world, and it, it, at least for a long time, has been the most powerful one we could find. And so it has bearing on our political communities. It has bearing on uh, our epistemological coherence um, that we understand science properly and that those who are trust entrusted to communicate science to the public are doing so faithfully uh, and are also not... Uh, not being corrupted by uh, different ideological worldviews, whether those are uh, political or otherwise. Um, So with all of that being said, I think we've set the stage properly then to get into uh, the main topic today, which is uh, this scientist, uh, molecular uh, biologist, and that is uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake is a biochemist with an interest in plant physiology He holds degrees in natural sciences, uh, a master's in natural science from uh, Clare College, Cambridge. He was also a Frank Knox Fellow in philosophy and the history of science uh, at Harvard. 
as well as a PhD in biochemistry from uh, the University of Cambridge. Uh, and that's just a little bit of his credentials there so that people know that this guy that we're talking about is not some quack who's, uh, you know, conducting experiments in his garage. Although I, I would say that from a pure scientific perspective, we wouldn't necessarily be opposed to, to that either, as long as it was uh, sound and replicable. Um, but this is a serious scientist who has some serious credentials. And of course, uh, I already mentioned earlier in this conversation that the crank slur always gets thrown around when these elder scientists start throwing their weight around and decide that they finally have enough clout to start speaking freely. Uh, he has certainly been demonized himself uh, as a crank. And if you go to his Wikipedia page, they will give you a uh, not so flattering uh, summary from the beginning. They don't even introduce him as a scientist. I think they introduce him as like an author and a conspiracy theorist or something, something or rather like that. Um, but you have known about uh, Rupert Sheldrake a little bit longer than I have. I only recently discovered his work uh, and his ideas uh, several months ago, and I will talk a little bit about that in a moment. But do you want to just give a brief introduction uh, of uh, your view of Rupert Sheldrake and how you came to discover him? Yeah, sure. Um, to me, Sheldrake's kind of an interesting uh, figure. Um, my interest in Sheldrake comes from kind of the side interest I have in uh, uh, scientific renegades. So like, for example, um, kind of one of my scientific heroes is uh, Freeman Dyson. And one of the reasons I love Freeman Dyson so much is because uh, he was just one of these people who would just be like, say the most outlandish stuff, um, just so that he could push the envelope a little bit more. And in a sense, I think uh, science needs people like that. Um, every once in a while, we have to let, and I, I, you know, I'll use this term, we have to let the cranks in. Um, we have to let them just say what they say, and push it to the limit, um, so that we can figure out you know, where they're wrong or where they might be right. Um, I'll give you a great example. B.F. Skinner. Um, B.F. Skinner was kind of the father, or rather the uh, torchbearer for this idea in psychology called behaviorism. Mm -hmm. uh, behaviorism was this idea that in order to understand psychology, in order to understand the human mind, all you have to understand is behavior as a system of inputs to a system and then outputs. So why are we influenced by things in our environment and what does it cause? And Skinner at the time was saying, I don't have to understand anything about the mind to understand behavior. What's really interesting is that during a dinner conversation, a philosopher went up to Rupert, um, not Rupert Sheldrick, um, to B.F. Skinner, and he said, hey, Skinner, um, you really think you can explain everything with behaviorism? Um, and Skinner was like, yeah, of course. And uh, the philosopher said, OK, explain this to me. And he just said some nonsense sentence to him. He said something like, uh, there's not a black scorpion falling upon this table. That was, that was the sentence. Hmm. Um, and B.F. Skinner, that basically sent him into an existential crisis. And for like the next 20 years, he spent a book trying to answer um, this guy's one question. And in the book, he basically says, um, um, I can define language in terms of uh, the behavioral process. And his answer comes like, you know, towards the end of the book, he says, well, you know, uh, the scorpion represented behaviorism and, you know, you're dropping it on the table. But the whole point is that the book was absurd. Um, B.F. Skinner kind of really pushed the boundaries in terms of um, how far he could take behaviorism. Um, 
And one of the people who critiqued it was a fellow named Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky said, hey, no, um, I'm going to write this book review and say, this is why we have to understand uh, some of the inner machinations of the mind. And really, that book review is one of the things that kicked off the cognitive revolution and us understanding cognition. And in a sense, if you were to sit there and look at B.F. Skinner, you would say, you know, this guy needs to shut up. This is nonsense. Stop, stop, stop. Um, his absurd ideas actually led to progress in science. Um, and by shutting him out, we would have just been completely, um, I guess, stuck on the behaviorist path, I think, in a sense. Um, yeah. Well, so behaviorism actually was quite dominant for a period of time and sort of became its own uh, its own dogmat dogmatism itself. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I would agree with you there that uh, there's sort of a, a digestive process that takes place where you kind of have to move through these ideas as phases to sort of come out the other end. And uh, and everybody kind of needs to um, to uh, sort through them themselves, have those debates, have those conversations and uh, eventually kind of move into the next paradigm. Right. The next paradigm of mm -hmm. thinking. Um, so I wanted to jump right there uh, from going from B.F. Skinner, uh, who's no if you, if you guys know Skinner boxes, uh, there's some uh, there's some infamous uh, work he's done there as well. Um, and, and, and get right into uh, Rupert Sheldrake and his critiques of, of materialism. So he says that, uh, and, and this is in the book uh, Science Set Free, which uh, I read uh, about a month ago and uh, got through and actually was very illuminating to me. Um, that book actually is very similar, in my opinion, to something called The Fourth Political Theory, which was proposed by Alexander Dugan. I was watching a lecture uh, or well, actually not a lecture, an interview with Alexander Dugan that was recently mm. posted by my friend uh, Michael Millerman. Uh, Michael Millerman translated some of Dugan's work, and though Dugan is very, very controversial in the West, I'm not going to get into his thoughts right now. But one of the things that Millerman says about Dugan, or, or that Dugan says about himself that Millerman has repeated, is that when people come to discover uh, Dugan's fourth political theory, uh, there are sort of two general there are sort of two general reactions to it. One is uh, is that people are totally uh, appalled and disgusted and they just reject it with as strong of em an emphasis as possible. They just want to get rid of it. They want to say that it's uh, you know, that it's it it's fascism, even though it outright claims not to be fat, neither fascist nor communist. But it is anti-liberal. And uh and the other sort of uh, stereotypical reaction to encountering his idea for the first time is that people are uh, uh, people want to open a bottle of champagne and they want to celebrate because finally somebody has sort of broken free in their minds the shackles uh, of which they were held to, which at least in the realm of uh, of the core tenet or of, uh, of the core debate, I guess, in um, in late uh, 20th century and early 21st century political theory would be that there's really no choice uh, in, in terms of regimes on a large scale anymore besides uh, communism, fascism, and, and liberalism. And so Dugan is sort of trying to stake out this sort of fourth position, not a third positionist, very important not to use that term. Uh, and <laughs> I feel as if when I discovered Rupert Sheldrake's work that I had uh, the same kind of reaction. I wanted to open up a bottle of champagne because it was like, wow, I thought the sciences were dull and boring and weren't making a lot of progress. I think part of the reason why I never uh, even attempted to go into the scientific enterprise myself was because as I grew up, I found that science seemed to be this dull, boring process and they weren't asking really interesting questions. And so I moved more towards philosophy where I felt like I could be more free to 
ask those important questions. But when I discovered Rupert Sheldrake, I had that very same reaction, which was like, wow, this guy has suddenly opened up a whole new world of inquiry that I thought was sort of closed off eternally to us and that we had Mm -hmm. sort of done away with. Uh, In particular, he says that there are sort of 10 tenets of the scientific worldview which make up the ideology of materialism. Now, we're not going to probably work through all of these tenets here today because that would take many, many hours of conversation. And by the way, I don't think either of us are are qualified to do so, uh, at least uh, with only each other to count on. That being said, I want to just go over the list real quick so that everybody is clear as to what Rupert Sheldrake's criticisms of the ideology of materialism, what he's calling the ideology of materialism are, and then we can start moving forward from there. So number one, everything is essentially mechanical. This is the belief uh, that basically everything that we know about the world can be reduced down into very clear mechanistic processes. This goes all the way back to Descartes uh, when we're thinking about uh, the origins of such an idea. Number two, all matter is unconscious. Number three, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, excepting for the Big Bang. Okay, so this is thermodynamics, uh, and uh, we have the uh, the Big Bang here as the, the the sort of exception. You know, if you get the turtles all the way down question going, uh, it always ends back at the Big Bang. Well, what what happened before that? Well, uh, there was some big explosion and everything came into being all at once, including all of the matter and energy. It's uh, not really an answer. It's more like a non-answer. Number four, the laws of nature are fixed. Uh, that is, they are. Um, they are stable and uh, and they unchanging over all time. Now, again, there's people who are getting up in their seats right now and, and ready to turn this podcast off. We're not going to be dealing with all of these questions today, but I just wanted to, again, outline his criticisms of what he calls the materialist ideology and give you some food for thought about whether or not these are assumptions that uh, we should just take on their face and whether or not they have, been, in fact, been proven by science. I know a number of people who call themselves, uh, you know, empirical, scientifically minded materialists. uh, And yet uh, they don't seem to have, in many cases, the uh, thought through many of these questions or even really in in some cases have the training to to even assess them properly. Number five, nature is purposeless. That is, evolution has no goal or direction, no telos. We are going to be getting into that one today. I'll be up. Number six, all biological inheritance is material. Uh, that is, it is carried in the DNA and other material structures. That one we might also be touching on as well. Minds are, number seven, minds are inside heads and nothing but the activities of brains. Okay, so uh, we have the hard problem of consciousness that's been uh, uh, as yet unresolved for centuries now. And uh, one of the things that we know for sure is that uh, is that we're conscious? Uh, we don't know necessarily uh, about a lot of other things, but we know we know that we have minds. Um, and so, one of the assumptions here, one of the core assumptions, uh, according to Rupert Sheldrake and his ideology of materialism, is that minds are inside heads and nothing but the activities of brains. That is, they are reducible again to those physical interactions inside of the brain. Number eight, memories are stored as <clears throat> material traces and in brains and are wiped out at death. 
Okay, so that's another thing that's been a real big problem, uh, not only in cognitive science, but also in, in aspects of computer science. We haven't been able to really figure out where are memories stored? Are they are they sort of uh, made up of the networks between neurons? Are there is there like a are they localized in a certain portion of the brain? Does it happen because certain brain, parts of the brain are communicating with one another? Uh, we haven't actually gotten as clear on that as you might think. Number nine, unexplained phenomena i.e. telepathy, are illusory. Uh, this is one that I'm very excited to get into, um, although uh, I have some reservations about uh, whether or not we, we should, whether or not it might be prudent to do so. Um, but that's, uh, that's number nine. Number 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Now, mm -hmm. this one, I actually don't know why he included this as the 10th assumption, uh, particularly just because it's so specific about about medicine here. And this one is very, very dangerous, I would say, if it's taken the wrong way. Uh, of course, right now, there has been uh, a rise in popularity in alternative, you know, alternative methods of healing, alternative methods of knowing, alternative methods of, uh, uh, of various kinds of woo-woo type, uh, type theories about, uh, about medicine. And of course, while we're in the middle of this pandemic, that's been a huge question for all of us. Uh, is uh, the soundness of our uh, of our medicine and, and, and issues around quackery and medicine and, and uh, homeopathy and other things like that. But he's putting that as his number 10 assumption. So given those 10 assumptions, those are what Rupert Sheldrake uh, posits as the 10 tenets of the scientific worldview that make up the ideology of materialism. I know I just gave you a lot to process there, Cody. I want to just start with that. What do you think of that list? I mean, it's really interesting. Um, kind of what you said is that most people don't consider what's on the list um, is what's critical there. Um, you know, probably when he wrote that list, and I have to imagine it was, you can see like parts of his thinking from, um, he has this idea of morphic resonance. Yes, we're going to get um, that into that. There, okay, yeah, that there's like a physical inheritance that is, um, non-biological, non-environmental. Um, it is physics-based in a sense. Um, you can see a lot of like the attitudes in that. I think the medicine one is really interesting um, because while that one might be rather controversial, um, it's easily his most falsifiable one. Um, it's one that we already know is pretty much patently true. Um, we know, for example, about cultural illnesses that don't exist in other cultures. Um, about how uh, people really can have spells cast on them by other tribes and they can only be cured by a shaman, something in which you go into these tribes and you try and come up with a mechanistic explanation. You know, you give them malaria pills or you give them um, some kind of medicine. It doesn't work. And you really do have to um, appeal to these kind of cultural forms of healing to uh, uh, deal with them. Do, do, you, do, you, um, sorry, yeah. do you have a, a, a specific example of that? Uh, and then I have a follow-up question to that as well, just to just to sketch it out a little bit more clearly. Yeah, I, I don't have a specific example. Um, this is something that's documented in medical anthropology quite frequently mm -hmm. um, about people getting ill because of spells or because they simply believe they have spells. Um, there are all kinds of different factors leading to someone, whether or not they're going to get better from an illness or disease. Um, you know, one of which is the idea that they know that there's a cure. Um, that, for instance, is something enough for many scenarios for someone's, you know, immune system bolstered up uh, to feel better, to do better. Um, 
you know, and it works in all kinds of cultural cases in which uh, the disease is not apparent. It's a cultural disease, you know, in a sense, it's, 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 it's almost magic. It's not literally magic, but it is in their cultural system magic, and it's working in that way. Um, and it has to have these kinds of culture-specific uh, cures. Yeah, I don't have a specific citation for that, but it's quite common. Well, so uh, I think the most obvious objection here would be that uh, this is some sort of sort of uh, psychosomatism, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, now, the fact that it could be psychosomatic doesn't actually negate necessarily the claim uh, that these things are, uh, let's say, extra mechanistic. Um, it just mm -hmm. simply means that there's something going on in the brain with relate that's related to their physiological health that we don't quite understand. And of course, mm -hmm. there are also there is also the phenomena of uh, of society or cultural wide contagion that is certain diseases that pop up that don't have any real physical basis as far as we understand it, but are sort of. Uh, 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 appear as kind of miasmas uh, as a result of certain cultural conditioning or thinking that's attendant to that age. Uh, that as well, I think, would would fall under this category of uh, of sort of uh, a kind of uh, a medicism medicine that is not quite um, not quite mechanistic, or at least not under not able to be understood in those terms. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I wanted to then from. Uh, I'm not going to get into the laws of nature and whether or not those are fixed um, because I don't think either of us are qualified to quite uh, quite talk on those. But I wanted to specifically zero in on this question of evolution and whether or not it is goal directed and has any kind of talos. Um, so the claim in, in tenant number five is that nature is purposeless, that evolution has no goal or direction. And if you go back to the early debates uh, around the time when evolutionary theory was being formulated and the ideas of evolution were being introduced, obviously by Darwin as well as others, uh, there is a school of thought that has been sort of relegated to the ruins of history called Lamarckianism, uh, which is very closely related to this idea as well. Uh, do you believe that evolution is without purpose that it has no telos or do you all or contrary to that do you think that there is a reason at least to question that assumption yeah uh, that's a great question so um let me just grab something real quick um, it's pretty funny this is one um uh, so Sheldrake appeared in a documentary series that's like 18 hours long or something ridiculous. Um, and it included Rupert Sheldrake, Oliver Sacks, the um, uh, neurophysiologist or psychiatrist, uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, Freeman Dyson, uh, Stephen Tolmoon, who's a philosopher, um, and Stephen Jay Gould, who is um, very noted uh, for being um, anti-teleological when it comes to the evolutionary process. And this idea of teleology is that um, evolution has some kind of um, goal towards the end. Where do I stand on that? I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm really a um, teleologist, but I, I do know people who do have kind of teleological um, lines of thought in which they say, well, you know, evolution in a sense is... Um, trying to preserve against entropy or trying to um, 
make more productive use of the energy around it. And in that case, you might assume that, um, you know, this process of replication through environments is goal directed. Um, one thing that's interesting, and this is what Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, um, a biologist and paleontologist um, who died in the early 2000s, often brought up, um, was this idea that if you were to just like go back in time, restart evolution's clock and play it again, um, would you get to the same point we are now? Would you get to human beings, um, you know, effectively apes standing on two legs, talking on podcasts, um, if you were just to play it all out? It's a pretty interesting question. Um, I don't think we would, but um, it'd be interesting to see um, if, if, if there was a way. I mean, we do know places in which organisms have essentially evolved um, certain traits and environments that organisms before them had in those same environments. And that's that kind of... Um, feature fit that natural selection provides that natural selection essentially filters an organism or a population through an environment, um, fits it so that it maximizes its fitness in those environments. And oftentimes what you see is that certain traits arise independently, um, uh, in different lineages, uh, to do the exact same things. And in that sense, you might say, actually, no, evolution is teleological. Um, hmm. Well, uh, so I had Will Buckner on a while back, uh, known as Evolving Moloch uh, on Twitter. He, he himself is also an anthropologist. And one of the things that I got out of his conversation uh, was that I really uh, understood from talking to him uh, one of the uh, ways of thinking about uh, human beings within, uh, within anthropology, which is that they're largely shaped by um, their ecological niches and sort of the incentives and resources and affordances that are available in the environments in which they evolved. Uh, now, this perspective, I would say, based on what you just said there with regard to whether or not evolution has a telos, would say then uh, that no, it doesn't. That uh, sort of how organisms come to be or how they evolve uh, is, is almost incidental um, to the niches in which they inhabited and the other organisms that are surrounding them that they're competing with as well as the various kinds of natural resources and weather conditions whatever factors you want to include in that um that sort of give rise to the incentives and the various uh, competitive dynamics that they're exposed to and then those result in various kinds of selection whether it's through uh just outright natural selection or more advanced uh sexual selection whatever it may be um that's driving it uh th that that perspective is almost reducing um, the mechanism of evolution down to pure physical processes, uh, something like mm -hmm. what uh, what Sheldrake here is is an opposition to. Um, and uh, with regard to whether or not evolution has a telos, so one of the sort of criticisms, and I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, quite uh, articulate this as well as others may have uh, in the past, one of the criticisms of evolutionary theory is that uh, is that fitness itself as a, 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 a as a function uh, is not very well defined, uh, and that it can seem as if it's uh, as if it's somewhat circular. In that, uh, what do we say organisms are doing? Well, uh, they're trying to survive and reproduce, uh, and that's what makes them fit. It's like, well, what what is fitness? Well, fitness is survival and reproduction. So so it sort of just goes back on itself. 
Um, and what you would get out of that is you would say, well, then all of the evolutionary variation that exists is really just a result of, of kind of ram random accidents, right? Random mutations, random decisions, random occurrences that, you know, cut off one evolutionary line and gave preference to another uh, somewhere way, way, way back. And then we're just sort of uh, dealing with the result of these sort of branching off uh, that goes all the way back, uh, you know, infinitely back to the origins of life. Um, and so all this complexity that we see is not necessarily the result of, uh, of evolution itself moving in a particular direction, but actually is just sort of uh, something that, that comes out of, out of everything. Now, of course, you also mentioned there uh, that uh, you run into this problem of complexity. Well, how do you? How are you getting this? In what, what appears to be an increase in complexity of life, mm -hmm. when what we know thermodynamically speaking is that the world is moving towards entropy. So, how are we getting? Uh, well, let's say, let's to, to use the phrases of Jordan Peterson. How are we getting all this order that's supposedly coming out of a system that is uh, on a macro scale moving into more chaos? Do you find that line of questioning? Uh, convincing with regard to those who are more uh, are more biased towards wanting to ascribe perhaps a teleological view of evolution. Yeah, no, this is a discussion I love. Um, Stephen Jay Gould wrote a book called Full House, where he tried to um, approach that question similarly, um, where he said, you know, even if you know evolution doesn't have a telos. Um, it kind of certainly appears that way, right? Like over evolutionary time, um, things didn't just stay as single-celled organisms. Um, you know, you and I clearly aren't bacteria, unless there's some superior being looking at us right now saying we are clearly bacteria. Um, <laughs> but um, we're not bacteria, clearly. And Gould's answer, which I find almost sufficient, um, is this idea of the drunkard's walk which is that um, a drunk stumbling home from the bar one night and on his left side, he has a wall. Um, well, as he's stumbling, he's just randomly walking around. Um, he's not necessarily walking in a straight line or towards a specific goal, um, but every once in a while he bumps into that wall and then he walks right. The important thing to realize is that to the left, he has a wall. He can't go down. He can only go up in complexity. Um, and over time, if you just measure his variation as he's walking, um, he's going to go right um, a lot further than he goes left, simply because of that wall. Now, what's interesting about that, or not sufficiently answered in that, um, is why is it that things don't just, you know, shrink all the way back down to bacteria periodically? Um, we've had mass extinctions um, that have been pretty bad in the planet's past. Uh, for example, when we had like a huge oxygenation um, um, event in Earth's history and it just like killed off like 98% of life on Earth. Uh, most of it was single celled, um, but that did happen. Um, why is it that we don't continuously get knocked back all the time? Um, why isn't that humans aren't just continuously re returning to monkey? Um, well, kind of the answer there, I think, is this um, idea of entrenchment. Um, that if you just think about this idea of the drunkard's walk, I would say, you know, that's only partially right, um, which is that every once in a while, the drunkard is walking on a path, but then he falls down. And the idea here is that 
now he's on another tier where he can't go left from that position. Um, so essentially he's on another drunkard's walk, um, but this time on another tier and he can't go back all the way. Um, and I think that's almost a sufficient answer um, to this question of why things appear teleological. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that... that there is a ratcheting effect. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's actually very interesting from a computer science uh, perspective because it's very close to what you would call a random walk in terms of the mm-hmm. search space. And you can actually view evolutionary evolution as a, uh, as an algorithm that is uh, as a search algorithm, uh, just more plainly. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I had a conversation with Jim Runt the other day and he said, uh, he, he gave me a really good uh, nugget of, uh, uh, of insight, which I kind of already knew, but it was good to be reminded of it, which is that every, every business is at its core, a kind of search algorithm. Uh, yep. And in uh, the offshoot of that, one offshoot of that is that there's no way of, uh, of knowing which search algorithm is optimal. Uh, this is called the yes. free lunch theorem. Uh, and so if you think of evolution as a search algorithm, I think then it starts to sound a little bit more teleological, teleological because uh, then you have to ask the question, well, what is it searching for? And now I, I, I said at the beginning of this, com- well, actually, I think before we started this conversation off camera, uh, that uh, my friend, uh, not my friend, but our, <laughs> uh, I would say an email acquaintance, Donald Hoffman, uh, has uh, an interesting theory of uh, uh, an interesting theory of perception that involves uh, evolutionary um, simulations, uh, evolutionary games that are simulated, uh, and 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 the core, uh, I guess, uh, offshoot or or thing that he he gets out of that is that uh, if you take organisms and you put them into an evolutionary uh, simulation using evolutionary algorithms. Uh, what you'll find is that the organisms that tend to succeed, uh, and if you play this uh, iteration over millions and millions of times, so that uh, the probability uh, goes to uh, goes goes to goes to one, um, <clears throat> what you find is that the organisms that are most optimized for uh, noticing fitness payoffs uh, will always succeed over the organisms that are uh, looking for truth, that is trying to understand the actual conditions of their environment. Uh, Mm. Now, uh, him and I are going to have a conversation, uh, hopefully at some point soon, that's going to get more clear on his ideas. He sent me a number of his papers, which I have been reviewing. Um, And so I don't have an entirely uh, clear grasp on on the full implications of what he's saying uh, quite yet. But uh, it's very interesting because if you think of evolutionary in those terms, then what it's what's happening is that you have all of these uh, you have all of these search algorithms that are then uh, uh, monitoring the landscape for differing fitness payoffs and optimizing for collecting those payoffs. Uh, that is improving their mm-hmm. fitness uh, in whatever way that that's defined, um, and uh, that has some. Uh, some various implications, uh, I, I, I would say, for this question of whether or not evolution is entirely purposeless. One of the things that you might ask then is, well, why would there be this uh, this uh, seemingly mathematical uh, a model that is looking for all of these payoffs and is trying to sort of increase its, uh, let's say, territoriality within uh, within uh well, within space time, at least that's the dimensions mm-hmm. that we 
that we know of that we're trapped in. Um, so anyway, that's all a little bit of a side, a little bit of a side, side, uh, uh, of, of an aside there. And I don't think we can fully get into all of that today. I want to move on to, uh, biological inheritance. Uh, this is something that I think, you know, a bit more about than I do and ties into this idea of morphic resonance. You mentioned morphic resonance earlier, morphic resonance at least from my understanding of Rupert Sheldrake. Now, I wasn't able to get in direct contact with him. He has whole teams of people that sort of manage him now, so he's a little bit harder to get in touch with these days. But morphic resonance, from as far as I understand it, uh, and this is my layman's understanding, you can correct me or you can uh, explain it yourself a little bit more in depth if you find that my definition is insufficient. Morphic resonance is the idea that organisms... Which, which are structurally similar to other organisms, <clears throat> have an effect on them that is time invariant. That is, things that existed in the past that are similar to things that exist in the future, there is a sort of connection uh, outside of linear time and also not localized by geography, for example, uh, by by nature or due to the fact that they are morphologically similar uh <laughs> and rupert sheldrake even goes so so far as to claim that uh something like our twin studies which which are sort of the the golden standard for uh you know for for, for various kinds of scientific comparisons uh in trials uh are you know sort of the classic example of identical twins that were separated at birth, right, are, are sort of the ideal, the ideal thing. If you could find those and you can study them uh, on, on a number of dimensions, then you get a great comparison because they're supposedly, you know, they're genetically as close as you're going to get to identical. And, uh, and therefore you can, you can work out questions of, let's say nature versus nurture. I'm very interested in this question myself, uh, just because I happen to be an identical twin. And so I know from uh, observing my own life and that of my identical twin, that there are certain uh, uncanny similarities between us, as well as uh, as well as unexplainable differences in how we came to develop. And now, of course, we didn't live the exact same life. We are also influenced by the presence of each other. We didn't. We were not raised in independent environments. Um, that being said. If uh, if Sheldrake's claim of morphic resonance has more to do with morphological similarity than it does necessarily even to uh, let's say genetic encoding, um, then that has all kinds of implications for uh, even even you know this gold standard in science that we have of of comparison among twin studies. Uh, what do you think of this idea of morphic resonance? It does not get a lot of I will say it does not get a lot of play in the scientific community. It's generally rejected as a theory. And unfortunately, I have not been able to find uh, a lot of solid explanations of morphic resonance besides what's on uh, Rupert's website and uh, many, many, many talks that he's given publicly mm -hmm. where he explains it. But I was looking for something a little bit more rigorous, which I have yet to discover. Maybe you know of something. Uh, what do you think of morphic resonance? Yeah, so the book you'll want is called Presence of the Past, and that was kind of his big expose. Um, on what morphic resonance is. And it's pretty much as you described it. Um, it's that there is not just biological fit, um, there's also physical fit in the world. Um, 
you know, his theory runs into a problem in, and, you know, he, he probably doesn't see this as a problem in, in that you don't get the mechanistic explanation of it. And usually what he says is that it's, it's something quantum. Um, but the example that he always gives um, is testing lab rats. And so he says, okay, well, you know, it's interesting that when you uh, take an experiment on lab rats, some kind of behavioral experiment, we were just talking about B.F. Skinner, who famously experimented on rats, says that the first time you try the experiment, the rats are going to be pretty slow. Um, but the second time you try it, they're going to be pretty fast. But he's not talking about rats in the same lab. He's talking about rats in different labs in different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, his idea here is that you can do an experiment for the first time in rats um, in America um, over and over, and you can train these rats to excel at this you know, different thing. And then you train rats in Australia, and suddenly you get a result that they do quicker. Um, there's all kinds of reasons that could be. I don't know if this is actually verified. Um, it could just be that people understand the experiments a little bit more. Um, you know, it could be that measurements change. Um, but it is an interesting question. The reason why Sheldrake came up with these things is because he studies plants. Um, and specifically the development of plants. Why do plants get certain shapes? Um, botany is like, in many senses, going through or has been in this kind of esoteric revolution in which people are now saying, oh, you know, plants have behavior. Um, plants have cognition. Um, plants almost have an understanding. Yeah, yeah, cognition. Um where people have been asking these questions and um, Sheldrake was really on the forefront of, of pushing all these ideas about plants. Um, but he later came to say, okay, like let's start talking about why do uh, different organisms have the same uh, structural features over time? Why do we get convergent evolution in biological systems? Um, as we were talking about earlier, natural selection, you know, often brings in this like form fit function um, even for different lineages. Um, but Rupert Sheldrake is saying that's not because of biological inheritance um, or because of the physical environment. That's because of um, something else, something having to do with just like the mechanics of shape um, and a almost not, when I say physical, I mean physics-based inheritance um, that they have. Mm. Well, so uh, in particular, he refers to it as a field theory. So he's talking about mm-hmm often uh, magnetic fields, which are supposedly what's influencing, in particular, this aspect of form, right? So mm-hmm. why, how does a leaf know, for example, based on its uh, its DNA inheritance, which is sort of a set of infinite information instructions for coding proteins, uh, what form that, that, that leaf will take, right? And of course, even, even among, uh, e- even within the same plant, uh, all of the leaves that uh, that arise on it are going to be slightly different. There's going to be variation among the leaves, um, and uh, and so this question of like, I guess one of the core uh, um, one of the core uh, um, uh, I don't want to say paradoxes. One of the core puzzles that's uh, that that Rupert Sheldrake uh, is pointing to when he's talking about this idea of morphic resonance is that we don't understand from what we know about, uh, about DNA, how exactly organisms come to be formed in the way that they are simply given uh, the instructions. Now you can say that there is a a sort of um, uh, uh, a compression function 
that's happening uh, on the level of DNA. And so what you're actually getting is uh, you're actually getting uh, information that's being compressed down to uh, sort of minimum viable uh, amount. And then uh, what, what you have on the physical plane in terms of an organism that grows uh, out of nothing and becomes something or out of, actually out of a previous organism. But in terms of an organism that comes to be based on uh, the recombination of DNA that gave life to it in the case of uh, in the case of humans, uh, what you have is, is then a, a sort of projection happening. Right. So you have a projection from one dimension into another. And so you can actually have uh, you can actually have that uh, that's let's say a three dimensional projection that's actually represented uh, with uh, with full um, fidelity in two dimensions, uh, and so that's one idea that sort of explains away uh, th- this unresolved question. Uh, how do you think about how do you think about that? I mean, is it is that a problem on just a pure informational level? that uh that we haven't really dealt with you know in this book i i do want to say at least in in the book science set free all of these tenets that i've listed here that are sort of the basis for us working through this conversation of rupert sheldrake what he does primarily is he takes the core tenets and he rephrases them as questions so is it true mm-hmm. that x or why is it that x you know do we know that x uh and so rephrasing them as questions is really more of the uh uh of the attitude of the orientation that we're having towards these ideas rather than making outright claims that they are or are not true. Um, so I, I don't know if I, if I totally erased the question there in that, uh, in that explanation there. Uh, but I did want to stay on morphic resonance for, for a second here um, and ask you a little bit about, uh, about his idea that it's related somehow to, uh, to uh, electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. So there was actually, um, what what Sheldrake is proposing is actually somewhat of an older idea. Um, his, his, his part of it is, is really in proposing this mechanism. Um, if you go back to like the 1910s, there was a uh, biologist, or maybe he's a paleontologist named uh, Darcy Thompson, and he wrote a book called On Growth and Form. Hmm. And famously he made the argument that all fish are the same shape. Uh, an eel is just a fish where you've taken it um, along this axis and just stretched it out. Uh, you know, a sunfish is one where you've just squeezed it. Um, a shark, you know, you just take a few points and raise it up. But essentially, you can get the exact same fish out of every single shape. Um, unfortunately, um, Darcy Thompson didn't really understand at the time um, Darwinian inheritance, because this was before the modern synthesis had happened, when genetics and evolution came together. Um, And so Darcy Thompson said that, well, I think it's something physical, um, that there are mathematical principles leading to um, why fish are just basically the same shape, and um, it necessarily doesn't have anything to do with inheritance. Sheldrake's idea about magnetic fields is interesting. Um, He had there's this clip of him where he's talking about how pigeons get home, um, how passenger pigeons know how to get, you've seen this, um, where he basically says, you know, during world war II, um, all these pigeons would be dropped out of bomber planes that were crashing, um, and sent to go home with a letter saying, Hey, we crashed around these coordinates. Um, please save us. Um, and Sheldrake basically goes through all the mechanisms that had been proposed for 
how it is that these birds were able to get home um, back to the British Isles, you know, from the middle of the ocean or from Germany. Um, and he says, okay, what are the reasons? And so he says, maybe was it the magnetic field? Um, maybe is it, you know, they're using astral uh, navigation or something like that. And uh, he goes through and talks about how all of these ideas had been, you know, discredited. Like he says, okay, you know, uh, people ended up, uh, you know, like, like blinding these birds and putting them in like spinning cages so that uh, they had no orientation of where they were. You know, if they had some kind of internal gyroscope sending them home, it would be thrown out of whack. Um, he said, you know, we can put basically, uh, uh, you know, electrical knobs on their heads so that it screws up the EM field and they can't get back. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because um, I, I think one thing about Sheldrake's proposal is that um, it almost is a little bit more similar to Darcy Thompson in that, yeah, he does talk about maybe it's magnetic or, or maybe it's electrical. Um, sometimes he says, oh, you know, maybe it's quantum. Um, I'm not quite sure that he's certain what it is either. Um, okay. Well, then we'll leave it at that, I guess. Um, so uh, there, there's uh, more, uh, more than just, uh, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's sort of pet theory of morphic resonance. Uh, some of these uh, criticisms that he has of the materialist worldview are um, are uh, a lot more general, right? A lot more general. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, what we really want to talk about is what are the assumptions that are built into our conceptions of science that are sort of getting in the way of the progress of science? You know, he's very careful to note that he's not anti-science in any sense of the word. And in fact, what he wants to do is he wants to improve science by forcing it to address these criticisms. Um, one of them is, of course, uh, this idea that unexplained phenomena, uh, that is anything that we don't have a, uh, a testable way of verifying uh, uh, or, or, or negating, uh, is something that we should just throw away and, 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 and preclude to the realm of, uh, of hokiness or, or mysticism or something that's outside of the purview uh, of science altogether, and therefore also um, under our sort of materialist paradigm that we're in right now, uh, therefore also, um, you know, garbage, more or less, um, by, by, as far as many people would consider it. Um, and uh, the one thing that he brings up that sort of gets everybody, uh, you know, in a rut is this idea of telepathy. Uh, now, there are other things that he talks about as well, like, uh, like remote viewing, uh, or um, even the 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 um, the phenomena uh, the phenomenon of people sensing that other people are looking at them uh, when their when their back is turned. Uh, this is a very common experience that almost everybody uh, has reported uh, feeling, um, at least uh, at least subjectively. Uh, now he claims that there are experiments that he has carried out and that others have carried out uh, that that show. That in fact there is uh, something to it, and these aren't just uh, these aren't just uh, intuitions that we have, um, or that we know about from uh, from watching too many sci-fi movies or something like that. Uh, what do you think about uh, his claims of not treating unexplained or unexplainable phenomena as illusory? I think that's an interesting way that he phrases it there, because you know, contrary to that he has actually gone through and tried to conduct small scale experiments to, to show that they, they're not illusory. Um, 
So how do you think about, you know, these sort of uh, these claims around uh, various kinds of, I guess, subjective experiences that many people have or that most people have uh, in some cases uh, that uh, the scientific establishment, let's say, tends to just Mm -hmm. reject uh, outright as sort of, you know, uh, paranormal thinking or, uh, you know, parapsychology, things along those lines? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's pretty funny, the um, the telepathy thing. You know, I, I don't really believe in it, um, but uh, a lot of people have. You, you look at, like, for example, uh, Alan Turing, mm. and when he was coming up with the Turing test, he said, you know, this, you know, this is the reason why we can say uh, computers are eventually going to be conscious. Uh, he had about, like, nine or ten critiques that he had to address from all these people who said, no, this is why computers will never be conscious. The only one he actually took seriously was uh, this idea of telepathy. Like someone said to him, uh, yeah, but like, what about like people can mind read and computers can't? And he was like, ah, damn, Uh, you got me there. I don't know how we're going to get computers to get there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's great. That's a great little bit of uh, trivia. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, my my thought towards these things personally on a personal level is uh, put a pin in it. Um, if you think something's weird, um, to me, that's reason enough to start asking questions about it. Say, okay, why do we have this thing? Um, why do humans tend to feel that way? Uh, you know, when proposing a mechanism, obviously you have to be able to, uh, tack it down to something. This goes back to this issue of the mechanistic process that we talked about Sheldrake. And this is something I kind of disagree with him on. It isn't necessarily that there are things that don't have a mechanism. Um, the problem is, is that if you don't have a mechanism, you can't really uh, describe what it is that you're even talking about in many cases. You have this kind of vague view of, well, you know, we know someone's looking at us and that's like a thing. And it's like, okay, but like, what is that? Like, When you get down to it, what is it? Um, other than an intuition. And if you're going to be able to describe what something even is, um, you have to be able to break it down into its parts. Um, But the point is, isn't that necessarily that these ideas about, you know, telepathy or, or, or farsight or anything like that um, are true. Um, It's that the question needs to remain open. Um, It's that we have had many questions about the world in the past that maybe we weren't able to address before. Yes. Um, and it was a very unfortunate thing because we didn't have the necessary tools. Um, we didn't take uh, things seriously on like a cultural standpoint. Um, the idea is to kind of let any question in, um, but when it comes to explanations, put a pin in it. Um, and unfortunately, oftentimes that's not how science works. And one thing is that there really isn't that much support for looking for things that don't already have an established mechanism of sorts. Um, You know, I can't imagine without Darwin, you know, tacking it down in this like massive thick volume uh, where he just like broke down every single farm animal and said, you know, we know why they got like uh, long hooves or long udders udders or whatever. Um, That's the same thing that happens in biological systems. I can't imagine that, you know, a scientific institution would just start, spending money on, on, on something like that without the mechanism already being there. Um, but it was something that was true. Um, 
there there is support, of course, from uh, private institutions. Um, things like the Templeton Foundation uh, gives money to very serious scientists studying like human evolution, um, studying things like um, physics. Obviously, that's a big Templeton grant. Um, but every once in a while at their you know stakeholder conferences, they do have uh, these kind of parascience uh, groups that show up um, that they are also giving money to. Um, and the fact that it is coming from like a private institution, I think I'm fine with that. Um, again, the point is not necessarily to count every explanation, but not to discount every question. And I think that's kind of the valuable thing. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have that culture in science, from my view, at least. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting, actually. You know, I think at this point we're uh, we're getting close to the point where there's enough like uh, just sort of free range billionaires in the world that if they really wanted to investigate these questions, well, like, I don't know, go go try to get some funding from some of these guys. There's a bunch of tech people, not just in the U.S., but all over the world who have mm -hmm. excess capital uh, and they're investing in, you know, all kinds of wacky startups that, you know, are inevitably going to fail. Why not invest in some some wacky scientific endeavors. Um, you know, one of the things that's, uh, that I think we should keep in mind though, is that people want a return on their investment. And so if we're going to argue yeah. that these projects need funding, there has to be some way of knowing whether or not you're just frankly scamming them, uh, you know, yeah. and, and looking for a check without actually providing anything of value. And that's very hard to do, especially when you start talking about wanting to get out of these, um, these uh you know conditions of rigor that are normally attached to explaining different phenomena and wanting and having a mechanistic basis for uh for providing them it's very hard to discern whether you're just throwing money into a pit and uh mm -hmm. and hoping that uh that some whack job hasn't just uh tricked you into um into giving them you know a nice uh you know half million dollar grant or something like that to go study whatever um, now there are, of course, there is lots of waste that goes into other kinds of things, uh, particularly, uh, various kinds of, uh, of nonprofit work and, and activists work, I would say mm -hmm. that is largely a scam. Uh, and, and they, they succeed at, at luring in all kinds of wealthy people into, you know, giving them funding for their efforts that are dubious at best. Um, so with that being said, I, I don't think giving some a little bit of money to some of these outside thinkers, even some who maybe aren't necessarily working within the traditional, uh, you know, halls of the academy uh, to do some funding provided or to do some research provided that they actually are serious thinkers and that they are seriously pursuing these goals and that they're going to at least uh, at least conduct reporting and, uh, and and share their results in a in a way that's publicly uh, uh, available um, to to see whether or not something something might come of these. You know, I don't know how much money uh, Rupert Sheldrake has accumulated by now in his in his later years, but I, I'm assuming that he's got funding sources coming in from from lots of different places. Uh, and uh, it, 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 one of the things that I've been curious when researching him, and again, I don't I don't mean to disparage him at all, is just why hasn't he been able, with all of his credentials, with all of his writings and public appearances, why is he claiming that these ideas are not getting, are simply lacking the funding to be tested out um, when 
it seems to me as if, you know, the people that might be interested in this, that might have the funds, the resources available to, uh, to pursue different, uh, different research endeavors on it, uh, are probably aware of him, uh, mm-hmm. if not, uh, you know, in direct contact with him. Uh, and, um, and so that begs the question whether, whether, he really has something going on here, uh, and there the, and the biases are just so strong, and so and, and and the sort of the anti Sheldrakean propaganda is just so thoroughly entrenched in us that no one's willing to take the risk, or whether or not there is, um, I don't want to say fraud, but whether or not there is something missing that he hasn't been able to sort of provide as a justification for maybe getting the kind of projects off the ground and the kind of funding that he would like for these these kinds of things one of the things that i'm looking forward to is uh is hopefully the rise of a more uh, i'd say a more traditional um practice of science you know science scientists historically were very similar to philosophers in that if they really wanted uh if they really wanted money if they really wanted freedom and intellectual uh, uh the ability to pursue their intellectual pursuits without a lot of constraints um, by, you know, be it government authorities or research institutions or whatever, uh, traditionally what they would do is they would find a patron. They would find someone, uh, often this was a member of the aristocracy, who was sympathetic to their ideas and was willing to basically fund them uh, in order to, to just sort of go work on them and, and, and not be bothered by these sort of financial constraints. I think that one of the things that a lot of people are now starting to talk about once again, now that we have so many people who are independently wealthy, uh, who weren't before, um, is getting getting better mechanisms like that. And I, for one, would be very, very interested in uh, doing that, not only in, in the sciences, but also in philosophy as well. I think there are a number of philosophers, a number of philosophical schools that are not being treated very well uh, by the universities as it stands. And um, basically, if you're not functioning within that system, I'll just speak for philosophy right now. Um, you're you're kind of on your own, you know. You got to like publish some books or or have a YouTube channel or hope that you can sort of make a living some other way. As far as I know, there aren't a lot of people who have the resources available to to sort of fund these guys. Um, and uh, I, I I would like to foster, uh, if we could, in in the near future, more of a culture of sort of noblesse oblige, where the people who have managed to make significant fortunes for themselves whether that's through tech or, or elsewhere, um, start to actually take these outsiders a little bit more seriously and start to actually fund mm-hmm. these projects that they're interested in so that there isn't so much reliance on, um, on these sort of uh, more homogeneously minded uh, university structures. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And you and I have talked about this idea of patronage before um, with respect to the Enlightenment that Walter Scheidel in his book, Escape from Rome, uh, hypothesized that really two of the reasons why the Enlightenment happened was uh, because patronage allowed people to uh, leave the traditional institutions. Um, and two, this uh, Republic of Letters allowed these people with different patrons to communicate their ideas with each other. I think two things are really important here. Um, one is this idea of open science, open access, uh, pre-registration, preprint, all of these things. For a long time, science, again, has taken place in the university institution. Um, As of late, it's 
you know, kind of becoming obvious that uh, scientists haven't been the best scientists. Capital S scientists haven't been the best scientists. Um, we know about the failure to replicate. We know about people hiding their data. We know about people just straight up forging data. Um, and so in like the last decade or so, and I'll say it's the last decade, um, we've developed this toolkit uh, to make science more honest. With that, though, I think that scientists kind of have to come to the exception that or to the um, to come to accept uh, that this toolkit means that this toolkit can be used outside of scientific institutions as well. That if you are pre-registering things, if you're being honest, if you're recording your data correctly, um, if it can be checked in the same way, uh, then you can say, okay, they're acting as scientists as we are. One thing that you bring up, this uh, that you have a patron, people will say all the time, well, this is you, this brings in um, a problem where you can be influenced by the person who's paying you. That, you know, someone will say, okay, um, I want you to uh, research cigarettes. And uh, my last name's Marlboro, but, you know, just completely ignore that fact. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm almost fine with saying that might happen. Um, because in science, we still have this kind of obligation uh, to those around us, that we have colleagues who we won't criticize, um, that we know people who we know if we say certain things, they'll get angry. Or we know that uh, the NSF really won't like this grant if we word it in this way. Um, and we better not, you know, do this instead of this. Um, I think that already happens in science in a sense, that we have this kind of uh, culture of obligation to those around us, um, rather than to maybe the experiments that we're actually wanting to work on. Um, so maybe with open access and all that, um, and, and, and I've kind of argued in the past that maybe <laughs> this kind of open access movement will end up like killing science within universities, uh, we'll get something new. And it's interesting to note just how few PhD positions there are and how many PhDs are being granted, that there is plenty of talent out there. It doesn't mean that those who are getting jobs are necessarily the best, although I congratulate everyone who did get a job. Um, the thing is, is that there are many people with talent out there who still want to continue to do this kind of research, and maybe there will be places for them in the future. Yeah, and uh, I I think that's uh, that's part of what we're doing here. Obviously, if you if you're doing a a podcast, it's a very small mm -hmm. type of uh, intellectual exploration. But ideally, you know, I, I imagine even just in my own work, being able uh, over the next few decades to build out larger institutions. Uh, as, uh, as, as my, my networks grow, as my networks get stronger, as people that I'm around, uh, you know, gain more positions of, of status and authority and also resources just in general. Um, I think that one of the things that the internet is actually providing is for the first time in, uh, in human history, all these people who were once separated by various barriers can actually start talking to one another. Uh, and there's no mm -hmm. way that I would be talking to you most likely uh, if we hadn't met over the internet. Uh, and, and so now, now we've had several conversations and I, I assume that we're going to have more in the future. Uh, and, uh, that's a, that's a result of this new ability to communicate with each other. And so if you can talk to people, everything that we know of that exists, that humans have built was built by other people and, and, and ultimately was created by humans talking to one, one another. So this is where it starts. It starts with conversations like these, which then lead into, um, you know, deeper, uh, deeper bonds and deeper plans and, uh, and eventually, you know, all out endeavors and the creation of new institutions and new institutions, mm -hmm. I believe are what's going to, uh, eventually come out a lot of the, of a lot of this chatter, 
Um, you know, people like to complain a lot about how, oh, all these people on Twitter are just doing nothing. They're just they're just not doing anything. They're just, you know, posting hot takes and selfies and, <laughs> you know, and criticizing journalists, you know, and, and it's like, well, hold on, hold on, like slow your roll a little bit there. One of the things, one of the most important things that's happening on Twitter is that people are networking. People are meeting other people that have shared interests that would have yeah. never discovered one another uh, prior to the uh, to the advent of these technologies. Now, I'm not claiming that Twitter is the best forum necessarily for connecting. Uh, I am hoping that there will be various uh, various Twitter like entities that arise in the future, perhaps some decentralized ones that aren't controlled by Jack uh, that uh, that come up um, and uh, and provide these similar opportunities. But it is at the end of the day up to just individuals, regardless of whether or not you're in a, you know, a, a fancy tenured position inside of a university or you're just some guy with a podcast. Uh, it's always going to be individual minds interacting with other individual minds who come together over shared ideas and decide to create new things. And that's how we move forward. Uh, there's no the, there's no magic magic uh, bullet. There's no um, government agency or, or whatever that uh, that is going to sort of move things forward. If anything, the government agencies mostly, uh, in my opinion, hold things back. Now, of course, there have been very important things that are funded by the government. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously, most of the internet that we know today came out of a DARPA program. Uh, but, but uh, at the end of the day, even within those institutions. There were individuals who made individual connections uh, across and outside of their uh, their uh, their gilded positions, and that's what brought about uh, all the stuff that we have. Uh, and so uh, you can you can thank the engine of capitalism if you like. You can thank uh, you can thank government. You can thank the academy. Whatever uh, whatever you're biased towards. Uh, it, it still just comes down to individual thoughts and individual minds and those minds coming together. Now, I want to get into this question of materialism. Now, all of these all of these tenets that we've talked about today with regard to Rupert Sheldrake's criticisms are uh, couched in this materialist worldview that we've inherited. Uh, and as I said earlier, uh, it, there is um, a long history of uh, philosophy of science that 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 goes back uh, that that this goes back to, uh, and in particular, I would say the predominance of physics and the power of physics is really what undergirds a lot of the claims of materialist supremacy. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say that we are in a materialist supremacy uh, paradigm right now. One of the questions that I have, and I've been struggling to get around this, I don't know if you have a good answer, but maybe I can at least pick your brain on it a little bit is, okay, well, if we're going to start rejecting some of the fundamental tenets of materialism, if we're going to claim that this materialism has sort of, uh, has sort of morphed into a kind of ideology that doesn't exactly have, uh, at least in some of its claims, um, uh, a sound scientific basis uh, for, for positing them as, as absolutely true in all cases, uh, what, what is there to grasp onto that's outside of that? Because if we're trying to move outside the materialist paradigm, how do we know that we have solid footing underneath uh, and that we're not just sort of uh, drifting off into into fairyland? Uh, you know, we talked earlier about uh, about these postmodernists encroaching on everybody and, and, and their intersubjectivity. You know, 
I think there's something to be said about the subjective experience. And I think there's something to be said about, uh, let's say, perspectivism. I don't know if that's the right word here. Um, but, you know, we also have to have a shared basis for, for understanding uh, each other and understanding the world. And we have to have something that we know that we can build off of. Uh, do you see a way out of this materialist paradigm? I know there's often a lot of appeals to, uh, let's say, um, uh, quantum mechanics in, in, in these kind of claims. You know, they, 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 they'll say, uh, well, uh, you know, we haven't been able to reconcile relativity with, with quantum mechanics. And so because of that, uh, there's all these uh, weird, you know, spooky action at a distance with quantum entanglement and uh, non-locality and, and whatnot, superpositions. And therefore, uh, we could sort of start to peel away the, 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 the doctrines of, of materialism by an appeal to quantum mechanics. But I sort of view quantum mechanics as just sort of a, a less understood layer of materialism. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you there that quantum mechanics is just materialism of a different flavor. Hmm. Um, and in so many things, it's it's hard to say what is and what isn't materialist. Um, I would say almost almost the the way out would almost be like a pluralism, but even then, uh, this pluralism, like you said, doesn't allow everyone to get on the same page. Um, my kind of view is that uh, you can kind of take materialism in places where you want it and in places where you don't. Um, you know, so like, for example, we can say, okay, materialism might be the right approach to taking science. That, yeah, we do have to tack down mechanisms. We have to understand how things work. Um, one of the good things about science is that we can say, okay, um, this gives us kind of a knowledge that is grounded in something. Um, but then comes this question, why, do, why does any of that have to extend um, into the political um, or social realm? Why is it that we have to um, always be like, uh, you know, um, this, is, this is kind of the, uh, the, the, the smart thing to do or something like that? Um, in a sense that maybe societies don't always have to be guided by science. They can just use it um, as it comes up for their issues. This is something that Feyerabend talks about um, in his book. Um, uh, um, God, I already said it. Against, Against Method. Method. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, he talks about this in Against Method, and uh, it's kind of interesting. He praises the Chinese um, because he says, hey, uh, you know, they use science when they want to, but they don't let it just control all of their institutions. Um, they just use it as the need arises. And in a sense, his argument is that um, this materialist worldview or scientism, generally speaking, um, is kind of an impediment to uh, human advancement and freedom, that we should have the freedom to make non-scientific choices. Um one place where I think this is really interesting is in separating science from the political process. The problem with science is that um, it has to be wrong. Um, you know, the way that science advances is by proving a right idea wrong uh, that you previously thought was right before. This is uh, oh my God. Nassim Taleb's Via neg Negativa. Oh, okay. Wait, what is... is that? Oh, I'm not sure. Maybe you're not familiar. He... he... He talks about uh, the 
this 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 point here, which is that uh, science proceeds by negation, not mm-hmm. by uh, not by affirmation. Yeah, 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 and that's that's kind of a traditional Popperian view. Yes. Um, but you know, what if uh, we're making societal decisions? Um, you know, do we always want the opportunity to be wrong? Um, maybe this is a case where we just do what works, not necessarily what's right. You were talking about earlier um, these simulations where you have two different kinds of actors or two kinds of agents, one which tries to know its landscape and one which merely makes it try to work. Um, you know, the one that merely does what works is the one that ends up surviving, the one that w- which tries to understand the game. Um, by trying to understand it, it has to make a lot of mistakes, I would guess. Um, and that ultimately leads to its loss. Um, so in a sense, yeah, science can advance that way, but maybe human knowledge or not human knowledge, but um, human societies shouldn't take that route. Well, leaving aside the the assumption that it's making mistakes, the, I think the the core the core issue is that if you're if you're uh, is that it's an inefficient use of resources to try to understand mm-hmm. the truth of the landscape that you're in uh, when when. Uh, optimizing instead for uh, for your fitness payoffs would suffice just as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's this interesting question of uh, how much does the truth really matter? Which again, yeah. it harkens back to these postmodernists uh, who are saying that, you know, in some cases that it doesn't matter that much or that it only matters insofar as it coincides with our power, which would again be a kind of uh, a kind of overlapping case where the truth just happens to be the most fit thing that you could do. And I think that's actually mm-hmm. part of the reason for the rise of the supremacy of uh, the scientific worldview is that we found that uh, if we have certain logical, scientific, mathematical, let's say physical truths that we can build off of, well, we found that actually that increases our capacity for affecting the world drastically. We can do way more yeah. with uh, a scientific understanding of the world than we could before. And so it's actually the utility of science that is so valuable to us, not necessarily the truth itself. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that perspective. Um, but, you know, as we both know, that's not actually how it plays out, um, that science and society play back on each other, mm. that, um, you know, if you hold this worldview, you're being anti-scientific. Um, you know, sometimes the answer to that is, so what? Um, does it really hurt anyone at the end of the day if my neighbor is a creationist? Um, I don't think so. Um, or for example, you know, certain, well, is there a scientist out there who says that they've totally refuted creationism? I'd like to meet them, Richard, uh, <laughs> Richard Dawkins. Uh, I'm Rich, looking at Richard you. Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, but really like, I, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I don't have a strong view on creationism, mm-hmm. but what I do find repulsive is that some people like to clothe themselves in the uh, accoutrements of scientific rationalism and then claim that every creationist is just a, a know-nothing moron or some sort of delusional, uh, you know, backwards thinking person. There's no scientific theory or principle or even law, which now we've, we've even, uh, uh, we've even pointed towards maybe there's some mutability to our understanding of scientific laws or, or they at least get updated when we find out that they no longer work. Um, mm-hmm. That says that creationism is impossible uh, and that it's precluded from, uh, from our understanding of anything. 
Um, and so uh, you're free to have your opinion uh, on that. Uh, I don't have a strong, uh, a strongly held conviction either way, but I would say that uh, it, it does strike me as somewhat unscientific uh, to simply dismiss creationists out of hand as, as unscientific themselves. There are, in fact, many scientists who are also creationists, less popular today yeah. than it used to be, but it is the case. Well, well, yeah, of course. And of course, there's like different flavors of creationism. There's, you know, you can refute certain forms of it in certain ways in which, but that happens within scientific institutions. I'm fine with creationist scientists publishing creationist work, uh, so long as it is still subject to the same, you know, critiques that the rest of science is. Um, we shouldn't be blocking out these people. We should be saying, okay, let's uh, bring your ideas to bear. And, uh, you know, let's just see how it works out. Do what um, do what Mitch McConnell did with the Green New Deal, and just you know, bring it onto the Senate floor and uh, see how everyone votes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, what did they say? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. You can sort of uh, just let things uh, let things die by by exposing them to the light. Uh, mm -hmm. That is uh, that is really in the spirit of science, science and scientific progress. Um, we should let the ideas come out, and uh, if they cannot withstand uh, proper criticism, proper, uh, thorough analysis, uh, and, uh, and rigor, uh, then there's nothing to be afraid of because mm -hmm. they're going to collapse. They're going to collapse, uh, uh on, on their own internal contradictions. Um, and so, uh, there's no need to necessarily be dogmatic about these things. Uh, if we actually believe in, uh, in the, uh, in, in, in the truth and the validity and the soundness of our processes, uh, this is actually very similar to arguments about free speech more generally, right? Which, mm -hmm. which is that uh, if you are actually a proponent of free speech, then you shouldn't be afraid of uh, accepting controversial, uh, even potentially dangerous ideas in the discourse. Because if those ideas are wrong, uh, they will uh, they will collapse. Now, I think there are some caveats to be made there because, of course, there are swindlers and propagandists and uh, there are various aspects of persuasion. Uh, so there are ways of sort of tricking the human mind into mm -hmm. accepting things uh, that are unsound. Um, and, and, and that can have ramifications that are, in fact, damaging to not only individuals, but also society more broadly. Um, and so we have to be careful there when we say that we should just uh, have like a, a totally free, you know, the free market of ideas, which I, I don't like the term. I don't even like the analogy of a free market of ideas. I think it's uh, very antiquated and somewhat uh, somewhat uh, anachronistic as well. Uh, I, I view it more as a, a an ecology of ideas. These ideas are competing uh, for uh, for various human minds, uh, and um, and so uh, the ideas that survive uh, again, uh, going back to our evolutionary game theory aren't necessarily the ideas that are uh, the most truthful. Uh, they may yeah. be the ideas that are the most fit. And so mm -hmm. that is also uh, uh, another angle we, which we could take as far as uh, the argument that uh, we should simply just, why don't we just debate it out, man? Like if you're afraid to debate <laughs> me, then it's just because your ideas are worse. Uh, there is something to be said uh, about, um, about let's say sophists of various kinds uh, the term that yeah, everyone right. likes to use on the internet is grifters there are grifters yeah you know, we have to we have to get rid of this disinformation and all of these grifters that i'm generally uh pro free speech to an extreme extent but i also do understand 
that uh, that uh, not everything is uh, that's popular is necessarily true. And also the mm-hmm. most truthful things are sometimes not going to be the most popular. And so there is a, a, a an interesting balancing act you have to play there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that. Yeah, maybe I take back my comment. <laughs> oh, well, you don't have to. We're not having a you debate here. You convinced me. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, uh, so with that being said, uh, we've been going for quite a while now. I think we're nearing the uh, two-hour mark, uh, which, is, nice. which is fine. I don't know how much more time you have today, uh, and I don't want to unfairly monopolize it. But as long as you're still uh, willing to keep going, I'm willing to keep asking you some more questions. Sounds great. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit into the research that you're involved in right now and find out a little bit about uh, where you're at. I think we've given Rupert Sheldrake and his ideas uh, a, a, a fair treatment. We've also talked a little bit about science as an institution and uh, the, the concept of scientism, which for those of you who are uh, we haven't actually defined scientism, but more or less scientism is essentially adopting science or using science uh, as a uh, as a dogma rather than uh, treating it as simply a method. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so, uh, whenever someone is saying uh, the word scientism, what they're usually doing is they're usually accusing someone of, uh, of, uh, dressing up what they're saying or, or what they believe to be true, uh, it, as science, when in fact it's actually, uh, there are, uh, unverified assumptions, uh, 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 undergirding it. Um, and, 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 and really what they've done is they've actually abandoned, or disregarded the fact that science is itself a continuous and uh, mm-hmm. self-correcting uh, process. So just mm-hmm. to be clear on that terms, but I wanted to then uh, move on from uh, from Rupert Sheldrake. We've given him plenty of time today. And again, I mentioned all the 10 tenets uh, of his critique of materialism at the beginning of this conversation. Anyone who's interested can go uh, look at those themselves and also uh, his, uh, his works, which we've mentioned at least two of his books here today. I want to ask you a little bit about what you're working on. So tell the people. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started a new PhD program in the fall. Um, I left my old one. Um, that was fun. Uh, but so I'm, I'm, I'm switching into the field of cultural evolution. So, uh, the question of, you know, how is it that cultures change over time? And what are some of the mechanisms underlying it? And one thing I've become recently interested in is innovation. So uh, you look around us and we have all kinds of nice things. Um, We have our computers, we have our microphones. I have a cell phone, I probably shouldn't. Um, We have washing machines, all kinds of different things. Um, And the question is, is how did we get that and how do we get more of it? Um, We know like right now, science in many ways is um, going through uh, diminishing marginal returns. So uh, for each dollar spent in science, um, we're getting less and less out of that dollar in terms of research productivity. So for example, um, money that went into heart research 30 years ago um, prevented, uh, you know, X amount of heart attacks over a certain amount of time. Um, But as we've you know, gone further and further, as we've kind of filled out the idea space, as we've learned more things, uh, maybe as we've gone down certain paths of knowledge um, to the exclusion of others, kind of like we we're talking about with evolution recently, 
um, it might be the case that uh, we're losing um, our productivity in a way. And so um, I'm wondering, what is it about uh, the way that, say, organizations or groups of people and the ways in which they're organized, uh, which leads to even more innovation? Hmm. Well, so uh, I have some interesting questions uh, for you there. Actually, that uh, uh, is uh, perhaps not coincidental. Actually, our very first conversation together, uh, which was uh, happened to be the very first show of this podcast, was uh, exactly about um, this problem of uh, potentially stagnating innovation. And so I'm glad to hear that that's uh, become your main area of study for, for the time being. I actually had a conversation as well right after that with Jason Crawford who uh, himself is uh, is focused on this question of why has uh, progress slowed down. He has this mm-hmm. blog called Roots of Progress, where he's sort of assessing uh, innovation more broadly out, not only just in science, but also in things like materials and, uh, you know, chemistry and nuclear power and all kinds of things. Um, and they're all asking this very similar question. Uh, Eric Weinstein is also very focused on, on this claim. Now he's more focused on, um, I guess, uh, his two areas of concern are like economics and physics. He says that there's a slowdown in, in economic, uh, productivity in, in real, uh, real return as well as, uh, in physics. And I think, uh, one of the bases for us having this entire conversation about science and scientism today is that perhaps some of these dogmatic views that we have that we have sort of inherited and that we're sort of just chugging along with are limiting, are, 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 are contributing to this, uh, this lack of innovation, to this slow growth. One of the claims uh, contrary to that is that, well, no, actually, uh, we're, we, we, it's just that for the last few hundred years, uh, as the scientific revolution has really come into being, we have picked all the low-hanging fruit. And so mm-hmm. there's no more uh, low-hanging fruit left um, uh, to pick, and therefore we're just going to get uh, we're going to get decreasing uh, you know marginal returns on our efforts uh, because of the fact that we've picked all the low-hanging fruit. Uh, also related to Eric Weinstein, his boss Peter Thiel says uh, mm-hmm. says that uh, the opposite is the case. That in fact there uh, it's only a uh, an assumption that the low-hanging fruit has been picked, and actually there are more. Uh, he would call them secrets to be discovered that people are simply not looking for because we've sort of given up on looking for secrets. Uh, how do you think about those claims with regard to the causes of our uh, of our slowdown in innovation? Do you think that uh, all the low hanging fruit has indeed been picked, or uh, or is it that we've simply given up on the idea? that uh, anything new and valuable can come about without tremendous amounts of effort? Uh, It's both. Um, You know, uh, Robert Trivers talks about um, evolutionary theory, and he says, you know, back when I was a graduate student, uh, theory was so simple that you could pretty much uh, solve any evolutionary problem with fractions. And he says, in a sense, we're still at that point um, in time, which maybe isn't all the way true, um, but, you know, knowing just a little bit of standard math will get you a long way. Um, Yeah, I do think it's a case that for what we're on, uh, we do have, we have picked a large number of the low-hanging fruit, but it's not as if um, each fruit that you pick, um, you know, diminishes the number of fruit on the tree. Stuart Kaufman talks about this idea of the adjacent possible. Yes. Um, Those things that we don't necessarily know about. 
Um, but it is like once you pick a fruit um, that is of that space, suddenly you realize, oh, there are other fruits of this type. Um, so, you know, it's that you discover a whole new tree from which then you pick. Usually when we find uh, new theories, new ideas in science, it spurs off like a whole new uh, field of exploration. This was what Thomas Kuhn talked about when he's talking about paradigms that, um, you know, one paradigm starts to slow down in its research productivity. Um, someone, boom, introduces something else. Um, and then all of a sudden there's like a huge flurry of research in that area. Um, it might be the case that over time that has kind of a space of its own where there's like fewer and fewer uh, points to be established or, or, or to be found out. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't say that our institutions are optimized in any way. Um, so even if we have picked all the low-hanging fruit, or even if there um, you know, isn't that much else out there, I wouldn't say that we're at a point where um, we're really at the same levels of uh, productivity or at the ideal levels of productivity that could be expected. And there are ways to measure this. Um, you can look at research output as kind of a um, you know, predictable paradigm of you know, what's to follow next. Um, there's certain like curves like Zipf's law or, or, or um, uh, the Hopf curve or something like that for looking at um, what we should expect in the future. And it may not be the case that we are as productive as we can be. Um, so I think that you can actually be agnostic to this question while still trying to um, uh, bolster research productivity or just, you know, industry productivity as well. Mm -hmm. uh, are you familiar with the concept of uh, tainter curves? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So uh, roughly stating, I'm going to try to uh, uh, be as accurate as I can be here, basically mm -hmm. says that uh, you're going to get diminishing returns uh, in, in terms of the benefits of complexity as the level of complexity uh, increases. Uh, and so mm -hmm. you get this uh, you get this curve that sort of bears out. Uh, is one of the problems you think that our institutions for scientific discovery themselves have become um, overly, overly complex, overly convoluted. And so there's just a lot of baggage. Is that what you're talking about when you're saying that it's not as efficient in terms of knowledge production as we used to be? Yeah. So essentially, uh, we've scaled up in so many ways, but maybe we haven't scaled up in the right ways. Um, what you're talking about with the tainter curves, I think, uh, is really important as well. Um, this idea that as we've grown these institutions, as we've gotten them larger, uh, we have just added on to the amount of administration that needs to be paid, um, the amount of what David Graver would call bullshit uh, that, say, faculty or researchers or students have to put up with, uh, while as previously they didn't have all that to do. And that's certainly a problem. One thing about Tainter's hypothesis, though, um, was that as you get to this tail end of the curve, where the curve starts going down, um, what you get by a lot of institutions um, is what he calls scanning behavior. And that's where they start searching for alternatives. Um, meaning what? And what happens? What's that? I said meaning what? Just alternatives to the system that you're in. Hmm. And if, let me see if I can grab the book real quick. So what happens in the tainter curve is uh, you end up like diminishing your returns um, but oftentimes, and I don't know if viewers are even going to be able to see this, is that you exit the curve and then you go into another one. Mm -hmm. um, but the good thing about going into another one is that all of a sudden you get all your returns back. Um, that every once in a while these institutions have to be busted up 
um, to allow new ones to come in. And this is kind of what we were talking about with the monastic system going down um, and allowing for the university system to arise. Um, hopefully right now there's some scanning behavior going on of people looking at different ideas um, um, for spreading knowledge, kind of like what we talked about. Yeah. So uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, ways of exiting sort of the university system. I imagine actually there will probably be some uh, some uh, decentralized blockchain technology, maybe some DAOs that are established to help uh, mm -hmm. help conduct scientific research and coordinate scientific uh, progress. I can imagine even something like the peer review system as it's currently instantiating be, being routed around. I do think peer review itself is important, but I mm -hmm. think uh, ultimately because you know you have to have your work be intelligible to those who uh, are qualified to, to interpret it. But, but, uh, but uh, the way that it's done now is certainly, it, it's just so outdated. The processes are just so old. You know, none of yeah. this, none of this technology that we have now, uh, as far as the internet is concerned, existed when, when these processes were first instituted uh, in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. So why they haven't been updated is really just a matter of uh, historical inertia at this point. Uh, and resistance uh, by those who are, are benefiting from it. So hopefully, all that Absolutely. all that stuff will start to get uh, innovated around uh, sooner rather than later. I wanted to ask you about another law, uh, which I'm not exactly sure if if some of these laws that have been coined are are laws in the proper sense or if they're just sort of colloquially laws. Uh, which is Moore's law. Moore's law is obviously a, a very mathematically precise, uh, and, and this has to do with, uh, with with sort of the return. On um, on how much information we can fit into a chip, right? Uh, as time progresses, uh, and so one of the arguments for why progress has been slowed again, this is uh, this is uh, at least the first place where I encountered it was uh, was was in um, was in Peter Thiel's Zero to One. I, I I tend to reference him a lot these days. I, I wish I didn't so much, but uh, so be it. Um, it. One of the claims as to why perhaps technological progress uh, has slowed down, and, and it also ties into economic progress as well, is that this tremendous success of Moore's Law, the fact that we're going to get you know exponential returns uh, on our ability to store information uh, uh, over time, means that, uh, that the physical space sort of gets neglected. Right. Uh, the phrase that Teal uses is that, uh, you know, it's it's become about uh, uh, everything's become about growth in bits rather than growth in atoms. And so there's less investment mm. in sort of the more uh, concretized uh, aspects of particular science and technology, things like chemistry, chemistry, material science, uh, et cetera, because of the fact that those fields are so cost intensive. Whereas if we're just moving electrons around on chips and in, in, in doing things on computers, well, uh, that's very, very cheap to do. And we're getting more and more returns uh, every year. And Moore's Law isn't going to uh, reach its limits anytime soon, although at some point we are going to get into some physical limitations that, are, that people are working on that already. Um, what do you think about that claim? Do you think that Moore's Law is in part to blame as to why there has been uh, so much progress in, say, information technology, uh, perhaps at the expense of other areas of inquiry. Wow, that's that's really profound. I did, I I'd never heard of that theory before, um, but you can kind of see how that would work. Like in terms of like again talking about tantric curves, it might be the case that you know we get more returns right now in computer chips than we do in chemistry. But 
um, you know, one thing that happens is that um, uh, Tainter hypothesized that oftentimes as you invest more in complexity, uh, again, you come out of the curve. It's that, oh, wait, nope, we found the solution and you get a new curve. Um, it may be the case that, yeah, we are neglecting certain things that we should be putting money into. Uh, maybe we are spending on the cheap thing rather than the next thing that will actually break us out of the real problems. Um, I'm very open to that idea. I think I think that's a great idea. Hmm. Well, it's not my idea, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But uh, uh, that's uh, at least one of the things that uh, that he's concerned about, because even in the realm of the physical economy, uh, tech companies uh, have a different structure than a lot of traditional uh, let's say corporations, in particular mm -hmm. industrial manufacturing, uh, requires large amounts of capital investment. It's very capital intensive to build factories. You also need uh, large workforces in order to operate those factories, at least until we get some of this automation going. I hear, I hear that Elon Musk is working on some of that. Um, uh, but uh, with, uh, with tech companies, you can have you know maybe one one hundredth of the size of a, of a staff uh, and uh, minuscule relative to uh, to to uh, setting up a manufacturing business, uh, levels of uh, of initial investment and cost, uh, and including yeah. scaling. By the way, the, your scaling also it does not become uh, you know exceptionally uh, cost prohibitive either. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and yet, this sort of has a. Um, uh, and so the, the different uh, structure, which I would say is not even in quantity, but actually is qualitatively different, uh, means that these tech companies, in terms of their uh, not only what they're innovating on, they're, they're going to mostly be innovating on information technology. They're not really interested in investing in, uh, let's say, uh, let, let's say, uh, you know, new chemicals. Facebook isn't like interested in buying up, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, chemistry startups uh, like maybe Dow has to do. Um they, they want to just, you know, build more websites and more applications. And, you know, maybe they're doing some stuff in, uh, in quantum computing and trying to improve the efficiency of their chips and, and whatnot or, or data storage. Uh, but ultimately, mm -hmm. they're sort of still confined to that narrow space. You know, maybe VR and some other things like that are a little bit more uh, hardware oriented. Um, I forgot where I was going with this question. <laughs> well, no, I, I see what you mean. It's this idea that, yeah, like... Um, your returns uh, to investment are much higher right now in these fields. And that, in a sense, it's easier to focus on these things. And maybe we have neglected these other ones. I think that would be a very interesting research question to ask, you know, how quickly was the pace of, say, um, materials engineering or metallurgy advancing prior to the advent of Silicon Valley, hmm. um, where we obviously see tremendous resources going into um, yeah. Well, back to my back to my point about uh, how these companies are qualitatively different. Uh, yeah. The fact that you need so few employees also means that uh, in terms of the economic structure and their contribution to the society in general, what you have is then you have an outsized uh, concentration of power in a small number of individuals who work at these mm -hmm. companies and operate these companies. Uh, whereas before, you know, the, the phrase used to be uh, what's what was it? What's good for Ford is good for America or something like that. Um, because by by their very nature, something like an auto manufacturer has to employ legions and legions of people uh, in order to operate. And so there really is sort of a broad, uh, a much broader base of prosperity 
uh, which benefits mm-hmm. from something a company like that uh, existing in your country. Whereas someone like uh, Facebook, uh, not only do they have the uh, convenience of being able to locate many of their operations uh, overseas, they don't need to rely as much on domestic labor, uh, at least as current labor laws are instantiated. But also the people that are still here are able to capture a tremendous amount of wealth without really having to employ that many people. And so that wealth is not actually very widely distributed as uh, we think it might be. Uh, like if you mm-hmm. look at the if you look at you know the top performing stocks if the top performing stocks are all you know Amazon Netflix uh, Facebook uh, all of these tech you know, Alphabet all of these tech companies the, there is a real um, sociological and political question as to how healthy is it to have so much power and so much wealth concentrated in these very very small uh, companies uh, and I mean that in terms of human bodies involved not not their uh, net yeah. Uh, not their net uh, worth um, versus more traditional companies, which by their very nature of needing to operate more in physical space uh, uh, created more broadly distributed uh, prosperity. I think that's an interesting question uh, that, uh, that regulators and that the government should ask. I'm generally very against uh, more regulation, but I think that's one of those areas where we might want to ask some questions about the way in which the qualitative differences between information technology companies and more traditional companies uh, is distorting uh, yeah. our allocation of resources because of the fact well, that they're able to capture so much. That That is a really interesting point. And, you know, one thing that's kind of unique to these companies is, yeah, their size, but also that they're effectively doing the same thing, which is trying to capture, um, you know, eyeball time on everyone's computers or phones. Um, and I, I've kind of thought about this before. Like maybe it's like the case that like, you know, putting aside how much wealth he started with, which was quite a lot um, that, you know, Elon Musk, you know, he, he has these extremely overvalued companies um, that do deal with like physical real world systems, Tesla and um, SpaceX. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting how successful they have been, uh, given that they are like in a physical space, that they are compared to like what they're putting out overvalued. And I wonder if if there isn't room for more of that. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of criticisms of Musk that, uh, you know, that SpaceX and Tesla are essentially uh, government subsidized companies. Yeah, uh, that they wouldn't be really be able to exist. Uh, I mean, to the degree that they're profitable, uh, which I mm-hmm. haven't checked the last time uh, what Tesla's status is as far as profitability. SpaceX is even less uh, uh, is even less transparent because it's a private company. Um, but uh, that is a question. Like maybe maybe there is a a real fundamental problem with with getting these companies to work in a physical space without mm-hmm. severe government subsidy. Uh, and uh, what we do about that, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, it certainly ties into these questions of diminishing returns in the physical space. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, and this will probably be our last question, just because we're nearing the end of our time here. It's been over, uh, it's been over two hours, so uh, I want to be mindful of that. Is uh, you said that you're studying cultural evolution, uh, and uh, there's an interesting assumption that's sort of baked into that phrase, uh, which I think you would. Uh, agree with by nature of the fact that you're studying it, but maybe maybe you have some uh, some interesting um, caveats to add. 
which is that uh, uh, the assumption is that cultural that culture, cultural artifacts and cultural institutions are subject to an evolutionary process. Uh, mm-hmm. This is uh, very similar to, uh, let's say, Richard Dawkins' conception of uh, of memes, right? Which is that these uh, there are sort of ideas out there and that they uh, play a kind of evolutionary game. I mentioned Donald Hoffman uh, earlier, uh, who uh, unfortunately we're not going to have time to get into today because we've covered so much ground already. Uh, but he even says that, look, uh, uh, he makes a, an even stronger claim that evolution itself, uh, and in particular uh, a, a precise mathematical uh, instantiation of evolution as an algorithm, Mm-hmm. is sort of more fundamental than a lot of the other things that we think of as being fundamental to our universe. Um, and so if that is the case, then uh, evolution would apply to all kinds of things, uh, not just organic processes, uh, not just living organisms as well. Do you think that there is a reasonable ground to stand on to claim that cultural artifacts, cultural institutions, maybe even ideas themselves are subject to evolutionary um, logic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing is that um, if you look into it, um, what, what we're kind of referring to here and what Hoffman's referring to is this idea of the, uh, uh, what some people call the uh, generalized Darwinian framework, which I really don't like because if you think about it, really, uh, biological evolution is just one unique form of evolution. Um, you look into what um, Darwin was talking about with natural selection, and he actually drew a lot of his inspiration from historical linguistics, which was already happening at that time. Um, in a sense, he looked directly at how people were examining how languages um, uh, developed throughout history, and he said, you know what, actually, I think that's how animals work as well. So he actually drew a lot of inspiration from them. Um, and he explicitly states, not to give Darwin all this weight, um, you know, people all the time, they're like, well, Darwin said it. So, uh, you know, it must be real. Um, but, but he said, <laughs> but, but he said, he said, yeah, the way that languages move throughout uh, space and time is similarly natural selection. And the way I try to just explain it to people is really, you have competition um, between different forms of something. Um, and you have between populations of something, I guess you should say. Um, and you have a filtering mechanism. At that point, you basically have natural selection. Um, as soon as like things are filtered through um, to kind of an ideal form, that's what you get. There are ways Was there, that cultural uh, evolution propagation as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, propagation, so replication. Um, yeah, so you know, there's all kinds of ways that like cultural evolution is different from biological evolution. Um, so, for example, Stephen Jay Gould says, well, actually. Uh, while biological evolution is not teleological, he says it might be the case that cultural evolution is. Um, he says, uh, you know, there's only so many different works of art that you can make that are going to be aesthetically uh, appreciated. There's only like so many different ways that you can improve upon, say, uh, you know, a hand knitting tool or something like that. Um, that unlike biological evolution, you do have a right wall that gets approached many times in cultural evolution. Um, but generally I would say these are all part of like one, um, mechanistic framework that you have similar mechanisms and they can be described in the same way. I don't know why you wouldn't call them evolution. 
um, people all the time shy away and they say, well, you know, that's, that's a terrible analogy, but it's not an analogy. This is a literal similarity. It's that these are the exact same mechanisms um, just acting out in different systems. Okay, so you believe that it's a, uh, again, that it's not an analogy, that it's actually a direct mm-hmm. uh, isomorphism uh, between between the two, and, uh, and and because of the mathematical um, principles and uh, processes that that can describe the uh, let's say uh, progression or proliferation of both. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they're not just similar; they're almost the same. Yeah. And so you would take that up to the abstract level, not only uh, on the level of uh, of ideas, or uh, you know, as Darwin initially referenced it, uh, you know, languages. I think language is actually a very interesting uh, angle there because uh, mm-hmm. my friend uh, Razib Khan, the geneticist, you know, a lot of genetics, a lot of what we understand from population genetics is actually based on, uh, you know, shared language groups. It's one of the easiest ways to sort of trace genetic lineages is is through the evolution of languages. And so that's actually a very interesting uh, intersection there between yeah. between those two. Um well, Cody, uh, this has been really awesome. I think we've given people way more than enough uh, ideas and thoughts and uh, various kinds of angles and introspective uh, questions to ask and, and to work with here. Uh, I don't know if anything conclusive has come out of it, but we've certainly, uh, I've certainly learned from you, and it sounds like you've learned a few things uh, from, from me as well. So uh, that's mm-hmm. always the goal of these conversations. Before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell me, or not me, I mean, I, I know, tell them a little bit about uh, where where people might uh, reach you if they're interested in reading your work. Uh, I know we've talked a little bit about what you're working on, but feel free to plug whatever you'd like. Sure. Okay. Um, you can pretty much find everything about me at culturologies.wordpress.com. Um, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is LTF underscore zero one Littlefoot. It's named after my cat. Um, it was a pseudonym for a long time, but now I just go as Cody. So <laughs> the Anon days are over. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you get doxxed by any chance? I just wanted to ask. Did I get doxxed? I kind of, uh, it was a soft dox. I had it set up um, in a way that uh, if you wanted to figure out who Littlefoot was, um, it would be pretty easy. But if you wanted to figure out what Cody Moser had written, it would be kind of difficult. Um, but I didn't maintain that two-way door for long or that one-way door for long. And now it's just a two-way door. So, all right. Well, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and uh, I look forward to us talking again, uh, you know, maybe, uh, six months from now. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds great. All right. (laughs) Thanks Alex.